Senators, uh, just for your orientation, uh, this will be the last presentation on Article I. Uh, and Mr. Leader, I think at the conclusion of this presentation will be a logical point to take a break. Um, this uh, last section on Article I deals with the injury to our national interest and our national security. When President Trump used Ukraine's leader for a political favor and withheld critical military aid to an ally in exchange for that favor, he did exactly what our framers feared most. He invited foreign interference in our elections and sold out our country's security for his personal benefit and betrayed the nation's trust to a foreign power. The President's scheme to pressure Ukraine to do his political dirty work harmed our national security, undermined our free and fair elections, and even today, even today, threatens the very foundation of our democracy. When the President argues that his call was perfect, that he did nothing wrong, what he's really saying is that there's nothing wrong with the President asking a foreign government to do a personal favor, that there's nothing wrong with the president pressuring that foreign country to interfere in our elections for his personal benefit, that there's nothing wrong with withholding congressionally appropriated taxpayer-funded military assistance to that foreign country to extort that country to help the president cheat to win an election. But there are a great many things wrong with that most significant for the purposes that bring us here today, the Constitution does not permit it. And the Constitution does not permit it because that conduct is the quintessential abuse of power, the use of official power for personal gain, putting personal interest over the national interest, and placing personal benefits over our nation's security. The President's conduct that we outlined yesterday harmed our national security, that is without a doubt. It endangered our elections and it sent our country on a dangerous path that if left unchecked will cause irrevocable damage to the balance of power contemplated in our Constitution. If someone sacrifices the national interest in favor of his own and is not removed from office, our democracy is in jeopardy. It's just that simple. The grave consequences of President Trump's misconduct demand our attention. Let me take these issues in turn, beginning with this harm to national security. First, the President's abuse of power had immediate consequences to our security. Ukraine is a burgeoning democracy entangled in a hot war with Russia. By withholding military aid, President Trump not only denied Ukraine much-needed military equipment, but also weaken Ukraine's position in negotiations over the end of the war with Russia. Because of President, Trump, President Trump's corrupt actions, Vladimir Putin was emboldened at a pivotal moment ahead of those sensitive negotiations to attempt to end the war. And emboldened Russia is a threat to the United States and global security around the world. The President's willingness to put himself over country undercut our European allies' confidence in America's commitment to deterring Russian aggression. And it signaled to adversaries and friends alike that the President of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, our Commander-in-Chief, could be influenced 
by manipulating his perception of what was best for his personal interests. Now, I have no doubt that the Russians and probably every other nation that has the capacity does a psychological profile of the President of the United States as we profile other leaders. If a president can be so easily manipulated to disbelieve his own intelligence agencies, to accept the propaganda of the Kremlin, that is a threat to our national security. And that is just what has happened here. But that's not all. President Trump's willingness to entangle our foreign allies in a corrupt political errand also undermined the credibility of Americans to promote the rule of law and fight corruption abroad. This is Trump first, not American first, not American ideals first. And the result has and will continue to be grave harm to our nation if this chamber does not stand up and say it is wrong. If you do not stand up and say this is not only wrong, not only unacceptable, but conduct incompatible with the office of the presidency. And if it really is incompatible with the office of the presidency, if you cannot faithfully execute that responsibility, if you cannot bring yourself to put your nation's interests ahead of your own, it must be impeachable or the nation remains at risk. Let's consider the big picture here. And probably a question many people around the country are asking. Why does Ukraine matter to the United States? Why does Ukraine matter to the United States? Because we're talking about a small country that many people know very little about. Well, this small country, this ally of ours, is a country hungry for reform and eager for a stronger relation with its most powerful, important ally, the United States. And we're talking about ourselves and what it means to the strength of our own democracy and democracies around the world when countries like Ukraine are fighting our fight against authoritarianism. At least that used to be our fight. And God help us if it's not our fight still. Russian President Putin declared the collapse of the Soviet Union to be the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Ukraine's vote for independence in December 1991 was the final nail in the Soviet Union's coffin. That made Ukraine's greatest moment Putin's greatest tragedy. When it declared independence from Soviet domination, Ukraine inherited roughly 1,900 Soviet nuclear warheads, enough firepower to level every major American city several times over. 1,900 Soviet nuclear warheads. In exchange for Ukraine surrendering this arsenal, the United States, Russia, and the United Kingdom reached an understanding called the Budapest Memorandum of 1994. 
They continued, they committed in this memorandum to respecting the borders of an independent Ukraine and also to refrain from using the threat or use of force against Ukraine. This was an early success of the post-Cold War period. Despite its commitment to respect Ukraine's independence, of course, Russia continued to meddle in Ukraine's affairs. Ambassador Taylor recounted how events took an even more sinister turn in 2013. The West. But in 2013, Vladimir Putin was so threatened by the prospect of Ukraine joining the European Union that he tried to bribe the Ukrainian president. This triggered mass protests in the winter of 2013 that drove the, that president to flee to Russia in, in February 2014, but not before his forces killed 100 Ukrainian protesters in central Kyiv. Angered by the fall of the Kremlin-backed leader in Kyiv, President Putin ordered the invasion of Ukraine, specifically a region known as Crimea. Russia's aggression was met with global condemnation. We lack the sound there, but you can see the images of that conflict on the screens before you. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Laura Cooper testified as to the stakes for U.S. national security. Russia violated the sovereignty of Ukraine's territory. Russia illegally annexed territory that belonged to Ukraine. They also um, denied Ukraine access to its naval fleet at the time, and to this day, Russia is building uh, a capability on Crimea designed to expand Russian military uh, power projection far beyond the immediate region. In 2014, uh, were there concerns in Washington, here in Washington, and European capitals that Russia might not stop in Ukraine? I was not in my current position in 2014, but it is my understanding that there was significant fear about uh, where Russian aggression would stop. One American, a war hero and statesman who is no stranger to this body, recognized the threat posed by Russia's invasion of Crimea, Senator John McCain. In an interview, he declared, quote, we are all Ukrainians. Senator McCain advised that this is a chess match reminiscent of the Cold War, and we need to realize that and act accordingly. He was, of course, absolutely right. Consistent with the commitments made to Ukraine in 1994, the United States and Europe responded to Russia's invasion by imposing significant sanctions on Russia. We joined Europe in providing Ukraine billions of dollars in economic support to help it resist Russian influence. And the Senate approved by an overwhelming bipartisan majority vital security assistance to help rebuild Ukraine's military, 
which the former Russian-backed leader of Ukraine had starved of resources. This strong bipartisan support for Ukraine reflected what Senator McCain said was an opportunity for the United States to undermine Russian leverage in Eastern Europe by building, quote, a success in Ukraine. Senator McCain outlined this vision. Putin also sees, here's this beautiful and large and magnificent country called Ukraine. And suppose Ukraine finally, after failing in 2004, gets it right, democracy, uh, gets rid of corruption, economy's really improving, and it's right there on the border of Russia. And so I think it makes him very nervous if there were a success in Ukraine in bringing about a free and open society and economic success, which is not the case in Russia, as you know, which is propped up by energy. Achieving the Ukrainian success that Senator McCain and many of us hoped for proved to be a daunting task. But several witnesses who testified before the House said Vladimir Zelensky's landslide election in April 2019 was a game changer. Here is how U.S. diplomat David Holmes explained the, quote, historic opportunity created by his election. Despite the Russian aggression over the past five years, Ukrainians have rebuilt a shattered economy, adhered to a peace process, and moved economically and socially closer to the West toward our way of life. Earlier this year, large majorities of Ukrainians again chose a fresh start by voting for a political newcomer as president, replacing 80% of their parliament, and endorsing a platform consistent with our democratic values, our reform priorities, and our strategic interests. This year's revolution at the ballot box underscores that despite its imperfections, Ukraine is a genuine and vibrant democracy and an example to other post-Soviet countries and beyond, from Moscow to Hong Kong. Support for Ukraine's security and reform is critical not only to our own national security, but that to other allies and emerging democracies around the world. The widely accepted fact of Ukraine's importance to our national security makes President Trump's abuse of power and withholding of vital diplomatic and military support all the more disturbing. First witnesses assess that withholding the military aid likely helped to prolong the war against Russia. When wars drag on, more people die. Ambassador Taylor testified to this sober reality. I take it if the provision of U.S. military assistance would save Ukrainian lives, lives that any delay in that assistance may also cost Ukrainian lives. Is that, is that true? Mr. Chairman, of course, it's hard to, prov- to, to draw any direct lines between any particular element of security assistance and any particular death on the battlefield. But it is certainly true that that assistance had enabled Ukrainian armed forces to be effective and deter um, and to be able to take countermeasures to the, to the attacks that the Russians had. had. And I think you said that uh, a Ukrainian soldier lost their life while you were visiting Donbass. We keep very careful track of the casualties, and I noticed on the next day uh, the, the information that we got that one was killed, four, people, four soldiers were wounded on that day. And indeed, Ukrainians lose their lives every week. Every week. 
David Holmes also testified that prolonging the war in Ukraine results in additional casualties. As we sit here today, Ukrainians are fighting a hot war on Ukrainian territory against Russian aggression. This week alone, since I have been here in Washington, two Ukrainian soldiers were killed and two injured by Russian-led forces in eastern Ukraine despite a declared ceasefire. I learned overnight that seven more were injured yesterday. Withholding the aid has real consequences to real soldiers with real families. And bear in mind that U.S. aid is fully 10% of Ukraine's defense budget. 10%. That's not an extra bonus. That's necessary aid for Ukraine to defend itself on the front line. Now, a second consequence of President Trump's withholding of military assistance was that it emboldened Russia, our adversary. Here is Laura Cooper, a Pentagon official who oversaw the military aid. What, what, what about today? If, if, if the U.S. were to withdraw its military support of Ukraine, what would effectively happen? It is my belief that if we were to withdraw our support, it would embolden Russia. It would also validate Russia's violation of international law. And which country stands to benefit the most, would stand to benefit the most from such a withdrawal? Russia. Russia was not only embattled, uh, emboldened on the battlefield. Ambassador Taylor testified that President Trump's corrupt withholding of military assistance and his failure to host President Zelensky in the Oval Office was, quote, a sign of weakness to Moscow. And it harmed Ukraine's negotiating position even as recently as December 9 when Zelensky and Putin met to discuss the conflict in the East, shown in this photo. Ambassador Taylor explained. I think you also testified that Russia was watching closely to gauge the level of American support for the Ukrainian government. Um, why is that significant? This is significant, Mr. Chairman, because the Ukrainians, in particular under this new administration, are eager to end this war. And they are eager to end it in a way that the, that the Russians leave their territory. These negotiations, like all negotiations, are difficult. Ukrainians would like to be able to negotiate from a, from a position of strength, or at least more strength than they now have. Part of that strength, part of the ability of the Ukrainians to negotiate against the Russians, with the Russians, for, for an end to the war in Donbas, depends on the United States and other international support. If we withdraw or suspend or, or threaten to withdraw our security assistance, that's a message to the Ukrainians, but it's at least as important as your question indicates, Mr. Chairman, to the Russians who are looking for any sign of weakness or any sign that we are withdrawing our support for Ukraine. And so when the Ukrainians learned of the suspension of the military aid, either privately or when others learned publicly, the Russians would be learning also. And they would take that as a lack of robust U.S. support for Ukraine. Is that right? That's correct, sir. Uh, and that would weaken Ukraine in negotiating an end to the war uh, in Donbass? It would. 
Indeed, the aid doesn't just supply much-needed weapons to Ukraine. It is a symbol of support, a signal of strength, a signal of the backing of the United States. And withholding that aid, even for a period of time, undermined all of those things. President Trump's actions towards Ukraine also undercut worldwide confidence in the United States as a reliable security partner. Maintaining that confidence is crucial to the strength of our alliances in Europe, to deterring Russia, and ultimately protecting and projecting democracy around the world. The United States has roughly 68,000 troops stationed in Europe. They serve alongside troops from 28 other countries that comprise the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. They are holding the line against further Russian aggression. It was U.S. leadership that led to the creation of NATO 70 years ago as the Iron Curtain was descending across the heart of Europe. And it is American leadership that makes NATO work today. NATO is also affected because other countries, friends and foes alike, know that we are committed to our collective defense, that an attack against one nation is an attack against all of us. That principle deterred a Russian invasion of Europe during the Cold War. It's only been invoked once by NATO in the aftermath of the September 11th terrorist attacks. New York is a long way from the front lines with Russia, but our European allies stood with us after that dark day. They deployed tens of thousands of troops to Afghanistan and joined us in fighting the Al-Qaeda terrorists who attacked the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. Now, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a threat to the peace and security of Europe. Moscow's aggression threatened the rules of the road that have kept the peace in Europe since World War II, the sacrosanct idea that borders cannot be changed by military force. If we had not supported Ukraine in 2014, if members of this body had not voted overwhelmingly on a bipartisan basis for military assistance to rebuild Ukraine's military, there is no question it would have invited further Russian adventurism in Ukraine and perhaps elsewhere in the heart of Europe. It would have weakened our allies and exposed U.S. troops stationed in Europe to greater danger. Deterring Russia requires persistence, not just one military aid package or one Oval Office meeting, but a sustained policy of support for our partners. We only deter Russia by consistently demonstrating support for our friends, friends like Ukraine. George Shultz, who served as Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State, understood this. He compared diplomacy and alliance management to gardening. He said, quote, if you plant a garden and go away for six months, what have you got when you come back? Weeds. Diplomacy, he said, is kind of like that. You go around, talk to people, you develop a relationship of trust and confidence, and then if something comes up, you have that base to work from. President Trump's decision to transform the military aid and Oval Office meeting into leverage was the equivalent of trampling all over George Shultz's garden crushing Ukraine's confidence in the United States as a partner. He also caused our NATO allies to question whether we would stand with them against Russia. Leaders in European capitals now wonder whether personal political favors and not treaty obligations guide our foreign policy. 
Colleagues, this is how alliances wither and die, and how Russia wins. Ambassador Taylor made clear that is why it is so important to our security that we stand with Ukraine. Mr. Chairman, as, as my colleague, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary George Kent, described, we have a national security policy, a national defense policy that identifies Russia and China um, as adversaries. The Russians are violating all of the rules, treaties, understandings that they committed to that actually kept the peace in Europe for nearly 70 years. Until they invaded Ukraine in 2014, they had abided by sovereignty of, of, sovereignty of nations, of, of inviolability of borders. That rule of law, that order that kept the peace in Europe and allowed for prosperity as well as peace in Europe was violated by the Russians. And if we don't push back on that, on those violations, then that will continue. And that, Mr. Chairman, um, affects us. It's, it, it affects the world that we live in, that our children will grow up in, and our grandchildren. This affects the kind of world that we want to, to see abroad. So that affects our national interest very directly. Ukraine is on the front line of that, of that conflict. Now, we understood that in 2017 the first year of the Trump administration, and it appeared the Trump administration understood it as well. And we understood it in 2018, and the Trump administration understood that as well. And we understood that in 2019, and the Trump administration appeared to as well. At least it did until it didn't. It did until something of greater importance and significance came along, and that event of greater significance to the Oval Office was the emergence of Joe Biden as a candidate for president. And then that military support, which had increased during the Trump administration, was suddenly put on hold for inexplicable reasons. Ukraine got the message. It wasn't very inexplicable to Ukraine. And what's more, Russia got the message. It wasn't very inexplicable to Russia that had pushed out the whole propaganda theory that it was Ukraine that had interfered in our election and not Russia. And so that consensus among the Congress and the administration, among the right and the left and the center, that as Ambassador Taylor explained, this is not only vital to Ukraine's security and the post-World War II order that has kept the peace in Europe for 70 years, but it's vital to us and our security as well. That all broke down. That all broke down over an effort led by the President and his agent, Rudy Giuliani, and his agents, Parnas and Fruman, to overturn all of that, overturn a decades-long commitment to standing up to Russian aggression, 
we have so tremendously benefited. No country has benefited more from the international rules of the road, the international order than the United States gave us the peace and stability to prosper like no other nation has before. And we're throwing it away. We're throwing it away. We're undermining the rule of law. We're undermining the principle you don't invade your neighbor. We're undermining the key to our own success. And for what? For help with a political campaign. To quote Bill Taylor, that's crazy. That's crazy. If our allies can't trust us to stand behind them in a time of need, we will soon not have a single ally left. Look, I, I know it's painful to see some of our allies and how they talk about this president, because when they talk about this president, they're also talking about the United States. And it's painful to see our allies distance themselves from the United States. And it's more than painful, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to us. I think it was Churchill once said, there's nothing worse than allies except having no allies. But if we're going to condition our support for our allies on their willingness to be dragged, kicking and screaming into our politics, if we're going to condition the strength of our alliance on whether they'll help us cheat in an election, we're not going to have a single ally left. And not a single one of us in this chamber is ever going to be able to say one of our counterparts to respect the rule of law without it being thrown in our face. Promoting the rule of law and fighting corruption is central to our foreign policy. It distinguishes U.S. global leadership from the transactional approach favored by authoritarian adversaries. The inherently corrupt nature of the president's demand that Ukraine investigate his political opponent undermined the credibility of efforts to promote the rule of law and combat corruption in Ukraine and around the world. Indeed, the president engaging in the very conduct at home that our policy fights abroad sabotages long-standing bipartisan pillars of American diplomacy. This was a problem, not least because the pervasive corruption with Ukraine leaves its politics and economy susceptible to Russian influence and subterfuge. Ambassador Yovanovitch emphasized that U.S. policy in Ukraine has long recognized that the struggle against corruption and defending against Russia are, in fact, two sides of the very same coin. Corruption makes Ukraine's leaders ever vulnerable to Russia, and the Ukrainian people understand that. That's why they launched the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, demanding to be a part of Europe, demanding the transformation of the system demanding to live under the rule of law. Ukrainians wanted the law to apply equally to all people, whether the individual in question is the president or any other citizen. It was a question of fairness, 
of dignity. Here again, there is a coincidence of interests. Corrupt leaders are inherently less trustworthy, while an honest and accountable Ukrainian leadership makes a U.S.-Ukrainian partnership more reliable and more valuable to the United States. A level playing field in this strategically located country, bordering four NATO allies, creates an environment in which U.S. business can more easily trade, invest, and profit. Corruption is also a security issue because corrupt officials are vulnerable to Moscow. During that conversation that, that we related in the past when Ambassador Volker urged his Ukrainian counterpart, Andrei Yermak, not to investigate the past president of Ukraine, and Yermak threw it back in his face. You remember the conversation. No, you mean like the investigation you want us to do of the Clintons and the Bidens. They taught us something in that conversation. They taught us that we'd forgotten for that moment our own values. You know, just listening to the ambassador right now, I was thinking how interesting it is the Ukrainians chose to describe their revolution as a revolution of dignity. And maybe that's what we need here, a revolution of dignity at home, a revolution of civility here at home. Uh, maybe we can learn a lot, a lot more from our Ukrainian ally. In short, it is America's national security interest to help Ukraine transform into a country where the rule of law governors and corruption is held in check. As we heard yesterday, Anti-corruption policy was a central part of the talking points provided to President Trump before his phone calls with President Zelensky on April 21st and July 25th. President Trump, of course, didn't mention corruption, but importantly, those same foreign policy goals remained intact following the call. As Tim Morrison testified, anti-corruption reforms, institutional reforms remain a top U.S. priority to help Ukraine fight corruption. President Zelensky was swept into office on an anti-corruption platform. Immediately, he kept his promise and introduced numerous bills in Ukraine's parliament. In a sign that he intended to hold himself accountable, Zelensky even introduced a draft law on presidential impeachment. He also introduced a bill to restore top uh, punishment of top officials found guilty of illicit enrichment. President Trump's self-serving scheme threatened to undermine Zelensky's anti-corruption work. Zelensky's successful anti-corruption reforms would have advanced U.S. security. Instead, President Trump's demands undermined that effort to bring about reform to Ukraine. Here's George Kent, a rule of law and corruption expert at the State Department. U.S. efforts to counter corruption in Ukraine focus on building institutional capacity so that the Ukrainian government has the ability to go after corruption and effectively investigate, prosecute, and judge alleged criminal activities using appropriate institutional mechanisms, that is, to create and follow the rule of law. That means that if there are criminal nexuses for activity in the United States, U.S. law enforcement should pursue the case. If we think there has been a criminal act overseas that violates U.S. law, 
we have the institutional mechanisms to address that. It could be through the Justice Department and FBI agents assigned overseas, or through treaty mechanisms, such as the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. As a general principle, I do not believe the United States should ask other countries to engage in selective politically associated investigations or prosecutions against opponents of those in power because such selective actions undermine the rule of law regardless of the country. And so it's clear what President Trump did when abusing his office and demanding Ukraine open an investigation into Joe Biden was not fighting corruption. It was not part of established U.S. anti-corruption policy. That corrupt pressure campaign for his own personal political benefit, in fact, subverted U.S. anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine and undercut our national security. President Trump was not fighting to end corruption in Ukraine. As my colleague in the House, Mr. Himes, pointed out during one of our hearings, he was trying to aim corruption in Ukraine at Vice President Biden and our 2020 election. Selective politically motivated prosecutions of political opponents undercut governance in Ukraine. President Trump's demand that Zelensky help him do precisely what U.S. diplomats for decades advised Ukrainian officials not to do completely undercut the credibility of efforts to promote the rule of law there. The demand also undercut the United States' moral standing and authority in the eyes of a global audience. Here, once again, is George Kent. Ken, is, is pressuring Ukraine to conduct what I believe you've called political investigations a part of U.S. foreign policy to promote the rule of law in Ukraine and around the world? It is not. Is it in the national interest of the United States? In my opinion, it is not. Why not? Because our policies, uh, particularly in promoting the rule of law, are designed to help countries, and in Eastern uh, Europe and Central Europe, uh, that is overcoming the legacy of communism. In the communist system, in particular, the prosecutor general office was used to uh, suppress and persecute citizens, not promote the rule of law. So in helping these countries reach their own aspirations to join the Western community of nations and live lives of dignity, helping them have the rule of law with strong institutions is the purpose of our policy. So in other words, it is a purpose of our foreign policy to encourage foreign nations to refrain from conducting political investigations. Is that right? Correct. And in fact, as a matter of policy, not of programming, uh, we oftentimes raise our concerns, usually in private, with countries that we feel are engaged in selective political prosecution and persecution of their opponents. Yovanovitch aptly summarized the global consequences and harm to U.S. national security resulting from President Trump's demand that Ukraine investigate his political opponent. Such conduct undermines the U.S., exposes our friends, and widens the playing field for autocrats like President Putin. Our leadership depends on the power of our example and the consistency of our purpose. Both have now been opened to question. The issues I just covered are not a matter of policy disagreement over foreign policy and national security. Article 1 asserts that the President was engaged in no such policy at all. 
but instead sold out our policies and our national interests for his own personal gain and to help him corrupt the next election. That is the core conduct of an impeachable offense. The President's abuse of power also affected our election integrity. The framers of our Constitution were particularly fearful that a President might misuse or abuse the power of his office to undermine the free and fair elections at the heart of our democracy. Sadly, that moment has arrived. President Trump's repeated solicitation of a Ukrainian investigation was a clear effort to leverage foreign interference to bolster his prospects in the 2020 election. In other words, to cheat in his election. In our democracy, power flows from the will of the people as manifest in free and fair elections. One person, one vote is fundamental in our democracy. President Trump's invitation of foreign interference in the 2020 election for the purposes of helping him win an election undercut the Constitution's commitment to popular sovereignty. Americans are now left to wonder if their vote matters or if they're simply pawns in a system being manipulated by shadowy foreign forces working on behalf of corrupt interests of a lawless president. Over the long term, this weakens our democratic system's capacity for self-governance by encouraging apathy and non-participation. Cynicism makes it easier for enemies to influence our politics and undermine the national good. Indeed, this is precisely what Vladimir Putin intended when he meddled in the 2016 election, for us to become more cynical, for us to lose faith in the notion that the American system of government is superior to the corrupt autocratic model of government that he has erected in Russia and sought to export to places like Ukraine. These are not the free and fair elections Americans expect or demand if foreign powers are interfering. How can we know that our elections are free from foreign interference, whether by disinformation or hacking or fake investigations? We must not become numb to foreign interference in our elections. Our elections are sacred. If we do not act to put an end to the solicitation of foreign interference in our election by the President of the United States, the effect will be corrosive to our elections and our values. Future presidents may believe that they, too, can use the substantial power conferred on them by the Constitution in order to undermine our system of free and fair elections, that they, too, can cheat to obtain power or keep it. That way lies disaster for the great American experiment in self-governance. As you have seen, there is powerful evidence that President Trump will continue to betray the national interest to a foreign power and further undermine both our security and democracy. This creates an urgent need to remove him from office before the next election. To explain the nature of that continuing threat, let me describe Russia's ongoing efforts to harm our elections, the President's corrupt refusal to condemn or defend against those attacks, his statements confirming that he welcomes foreign interference in our elections, so long as this is meant to help him and his conduct proving that he will persist in seeking to corrupt elections at the expense of our security and at the expense of those elections. Let's start with Russia's ongoing attacks on our democracy. 
At the heart of the President's Ukraine scheme is his decision to subscribe to that dangerous conspiracy theory that Ukraine, not Russia, was responsible for interfering in 2016. President Trump and his men pressured Ukraine into investigating this bogus piece of Russian propaganda, and in doing so, they aided Putin's concert, concerted plot to undermine our security and democracy. Special Counsel Mueller warned that Putin's plot was ongoing. Is this, um, in your investigation, did you think that this was a single attempt by the Russians to get involved in our election, or did you find evidence to suggest they'll try to do this again? Oh, it wasn't a single attempt. Uh, they're doing it as we sit here. And they expect to do it uh, 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 during the, the next campaign. Not a single attempt. They're doing it as we sit here. And they expect to do it in the next campaign. That was Special Counsel Mueller's stark warning. And we now know that Director Mueller was right. Just the other week, we saw public reporting that Russian hackers may be using phishing emails to attack the Ukrainian gas company Burisma, presumably in search of dirt on Joe Biden. Those are the same tactics deployed by the same adversary, Russia, that special counsel warned about in the last election. It may be Russia once again attempting to sway our election for one candidate, this time through Ukraine. Indeed, President Trump to this very day refuses to accept the unanimous assessment of our intelligence community and law enforcement professionals that Russia interfered in the 2016 campaign and poses a threat to the 2020 presidential election. Instead, he views it from his own personal lens, whether it is an attack on the legitimacy of his 2016 electoral victory. Special Counsel Mueller's testimony on July 24 2019, the day before the President's call with President Zelensky, contradicted President Trump's claim that his was, quote, a clean campaign. Mueller found that individuals associated with the 2016 campaign of the President welcomed Russia's offers of assistance and adjusted their political strategy so that then-candidate Donald Trump might benefit from Russia's assistance. When they were subsequently asked by U.S. law enforcement about their activities, President Trump's advisors repeatedly lied. In Helsinki in July of 2018, however, President Trump refused to acknowledge the Russian threat to our elections. When a reporter explicitly asked whether he believed Putin or the U.S. intelligence agencies on the issue of foreign interference in the 2016 election, President Trump said, quote, I don't see any reason why it would be Russia and talked about the DNC server. So let me just say that we have two thoughts. You have groups that are wondering why the FBI never took the server. Why haven't they taken the server? Why was the FBI told to leave the office of the Democratic National Committee? I've been wondering that. I've been asking that for months and months, and I've been tweeting it out and calling it out on social media. Where is the server? I want to know where is the server and what is the server saying? With that being said, all I can do is ask the question. My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin 
Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be, but I really do want to see the server. Uh, but I have, uh, I have confidence in both parties. I, I really believe that this will probably go on for a while, but I don't think it can go on without finding out what happened to the server. What happened to the servers of the Pakistani gentleman that worked on the DNC? Where are those servers? They're missing. Where are they? What happened to Hillary Clinton's emails? 33,000 emails, gone, just gone. I think in Russia they wouldn't be gone so easily. I think it's a disgrace that we can't get Hillary Clinton's 33,000 emails. So I have I'm sure you remember this. It was, I think, unforgettable for every American. But I'm sure it was equally unforgettable for Vladimir Putin. I mean, there he is, the president of Russia, standing next to the president of the United States and hearing his own Kremlin propaganda talking points coming from the president of the United States. Now, if that's not a propaganda coup, I don't know what is. It's the most extraordinary thing. It's the most extraordinary thing. The President of the United States standing next to the President of Russia, our adversary, saying he doesn't believe his own intelligence agencies. He doesn't believe them. He's promoting this kooky, crazy server theory cooked up by the Kremlin, right next to the guy that cooked it up. It's a breathtaking success of Russian intelligence. I don't know if there's ever been a greater success of Russian intelligence. Whatever profile Russia did of our president, boy, did they have him spot on. Flattery and propaganda. Flattery and propaganda is all Russia needed. And as to Ukraine, well, they needed to deliver a political investigation to get help from the United States. I mean, this is just the most incredible propaganda coup. Because as, as I said yesterday, it's not just that the President of the United States standing next to Vladimir Putin is, is reading Kremlin talking points. He won't read his own national security staff talking points, but he will read the Kremlin ones. But it's not just that he adopts the Kremlin talking points. That would be bad enough. It's not bad enough, it's not damaging enough, it's not dangerous enough to our national security that he's undermining our own intelligence agencies. It's not bad enough that, that he undermines those very agencies that he needs later, that we need later to have credibility. We've just had a vigorous debate over these, the strikes against General Soleimani. And the President has made his argument about what the intelligence says and supports. How do, you, how do you make those arguments when you say the U.S. intelligence community can't be believed? Now, we've had a vigorous debate about what that intelligence has to say. That's not the issue here. The issue here is you undermine the credibility of your own intelligence agencies. You weaken the country for when you need to rely on them for when you need to persuade your friends and your allies, you can trust us. 
when we tell you this is what the intelligence shows. How do you make that argument as the President of the United States when you've just told the world you trust the Russians more than your own people? You trust Rudy Giuliani more than Christopher Wray. How do you make that case? And if you can't make that case, what does that mean to our security? But that's not the end of it. It's not just a propaganda coup. It's not just the undermining of our agencies. It's also that the buy-in to that propaganda meant that Ukraine wasn't going to get money to fight the Russians. I mean, that's one hell of a Russian intelligence coup. They got the President of the United States to provide cover for their own interference with our election. They got the President of the United States to discredit his own intelligence agencies. They got the President of the United States to drive a wedge between the United States and Ukraine. They got the President of the United States to withhold aid from, from Ukraine in a war with Russia, in a war that is claiming Ukrainian lives every week. Has there ever been such a coup? I would submit to you, in the entire length of the Cold War, the Soviet Union had no such success. No such success. And why? Because a former mayor of New York persuaded a president of the United States to sacrifice all of that for a cheap shot at his political opponent, for a smear against his political opponent. Was it worth it? I hope it was worth it. I hope it was worth it for the president. Because it certainly wasn't worth it for the United States. Now, you can see President Trump did not blame Vladimir Putin and the Russian intelligence agencies who interfered in our election for the questions surrounding his victory. He did not blame the people who worked for his campaign and were subsequently convicted of lying to our law enforcement agencies. No, he blamed the investigators. Special Counsel Mueller, the man charged with getting to the bottom of Russia's interference in 2016. And he chose to believe Vladimir Putin a former Russian intelligence officer rather than his own intelligence agencies. We can see a pattern here. President Trump solicited interference from Russia as a candidate in 2016, and then his campaign welcomed Russian interference in the election. In Helsinki, President Trump chose to believe Putin over his own agencies. I don't see any reason why it would be, referring to Russia. Instead of denouncing Russia's interference, he denounced those investigating Russia's interference. And he raised that now familiar DNC CrowdStrike server thing. I really do want to see the server. I don't think we can go on without finding out what happened to the server. That's the exact same server that President Trump demanded Ukraine investigate during his July 25th call Zelensky. When the president talked about the DNC server in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin standing by his side, he was referencing the same discredited conspiracy theory about Ukraine interference in 2016 
that Putin repeatedly promoted. Let's look at this Washington Post article from July 2018. In the end, Trump's performance alongside Putin in the Finnish capital seemed like a tour through his most controversial conspiracy theories. Tweets and off-the-cuff musings on Russia, except he did it all while abroad, standing just feet from Putin, the leader of one of America's greatest geopolitical foes. Spectacle and Helsinki also underscored Trump's eagerness to disregard his own advisors, his willingness to flout the conclusions of his own intelligence community that Russia interfered in the 2016 elections and his apparent fear that pressing Putin on the subject might cast doubt on his electoral victory. White House officials told the Washington Post that President Trump's remarks in Helsinki were, quote, very much counter to the plan. That's another understatement of the century. If that sounds familiar, it's because the witness who testified before the House as part of the impeachment inquiry, they all said the same thing about the July 25th phone call. The president ignored vital national security issues he was supposed to raise and instead raised disproven conspiracies about 2016 and the DNC server, the very same Russian propaganda he publicly endorsed in Helsinki. Do you think it's going to stop now? Do you think if we do nothing, it's going to stop now. All of the evidence is to the contrary. You know it's not going to stop. The president just told one of the members of this body he still wants Biden investigated. It's not going to stop unless the Congress does something about it. President Trump's betrayal began in 2016 when he first solicited Russian interference in our election. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. That betrayal continued in Helsinki in 2018, when, as we saw, he rejected the intelligence community's assessment about Russian interference in that same election when he criticized U.S. officials investigating the Russia interference and instead promoted Putin's conspiracy theory about Ukraine. The betrayal continued in 2019 when he carried out a scheme to cheat in the 2020 election by demanding that the leader of Ukraine, a U.S. partner under military attack by Russia, announce an investigation into the same baseless conspiracy theory about a DNC server and the bogus allegations about Vice President Biden. And the abuse of power continues. He is still trying to cheat in the next election. Even after the scheme came to light, even after it became the subject of an impeachment inquiry, it continued. And the false statements about it continued. President Trump repeatedly asserted that he had a prerogative to urge foreign nations to investigate U.S. citizens who dare to challenge him politically. You know, I mean, just for a minute, we should try to step into the shoes of someone else. My father used to say, you don't understand a person until you step in their shoes. I always thought he, 
He invented that wisdom himself until I watched To Kill a Mockingbird and found out that Atticus Finch said it first. But let's just try to step into someone else's shoes for a moment. Let's imagine it wasn't Joe Biden. Let's imagine it was any one of us. Let's imagine the most powerful person in the world was asking a foreign nation to conduct a sham investigation into one of us. What would we think about it then? Would we think that's good U.S. policy? Would we think he has every right to do it? Would we think that's a perfect call? Let's step for a minute into Ambassador Yovanovitch's shoes. And we're the subject of a vicious smear campaign that no one in the department that we work for up to the Secretary of State thinks has a shred of credibility. Let's step into her shoes for a minute. Spent our whole life devoted to public service, served in dangerous places around the world. And we're hounded out of our post. And one day someone releases a transcript of a call between the President of the United States and a foreign leader. And the President says, there's going to be some things happening to you. Or to you, or to you, or to you, or to you. How would you feel about the President of the United States? Would you think he was abusing the power of his office? And if you would, it shouldn't matter that it wasn't you. It shouldn't matter that it was Marie Ivanovich. It shouldn't matter that it was Joe Biden. Because I'll tell you something, the next time, it just may be you. It just may be you. Do you think for a moment that any of you, no matter what your relationship with this president, no matter how close you are to this president, do you think for a moment that if he felt it was in his interest, he wouldn't ask you to be investigated? Do you think for a moment that he wouldn't? And if somewhere deep down below you realize that he would, you cannot leave a man like that in office when he has violated the Constitution. It shouldn't matter it was Joe Biden. It could have been any of us. It may be any of us. It shouldn't matter that it was Marie Ivanovich. It'll be some other diplomat tomorrow for some other pernicious reason. It goes to what Mr. Jeffries said. It goes to character. You don't realize how important character is in the highest office in the land until you don't have it. Do you have a president willing to use his power to coerce an ally to help him cheat, to investigate one of our fellow citizens, one of our fellow citizens? Yes, he's running for president. He's still a U.S. citizen. He's still a U.S. citizen. And he deserves better than that. Now, of course, it wasn't just Ukraine, it wasn't just Russia. There's the invitation to China to investigate the Bidens. It's not going to stop. On September 19th, Rudy Giuliani was interviewed on Chris Cuomo and CNN. You've probably all seen the clip. When asked specifically 
If he had urged Ukraine to look into Vice President Biden, Mr. Giuliani replied immediately, of course I did. Of course I did. It shouldn't matter that it was Joe Biden. Wasn't Hunter Biden there? It was Joe Biden. Wasn't Hunter Biden on that call? It was Joe Biden. But it shouldn't matter whether it's Hunter Biden or Joe Biden. We're talking about American citizens. It shouldn't matter to any of us which American citizens. And he hasn't stopped urging Ukraine to conduct these investigations. Mr. Giuliani hasn't. Donald Trump hasn't. To the contrary, and consistent with everything we know about the president, he has done nothing but double down. During his first week, the first week of December, Mr. Giuliani traveled to Ukraine and Hungary to interview the corrupt former Ukrainian prosecutors who had been pushing these false narratives about Vice President Biden and this kooky conspiracy about 2016. Mr. Giuliani met with current members of the Ukraine parliament who have advocated for that same fraudulent investigation. In June of last year, President Trump told ABC News that he would take political dirt from a foreign country if he was offered it again. If he has learned anything from the tumult of the last three years, it is he can get away with anything. Can do it again. Can't be indicted. Can't be impeached. Can't, if you believe our Attorney General, even be investigated. Our founders worried about a situation just like this. James Madison put it simply, President, quote, might betray his trust to foreign powers. In his farewell address, George Washington warned Americans to be constantly awake, since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government. John Adams, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, wrote, you are apprehensive of foreign interference, intrigue, influence, so am I. But as often as elections happen, the danger of foreign influence recurs. Or, to quote the president's chief of staff, get over it. There's going to be politics and foreign policy. Well, I don't think that was John Adams' point. And I don't think that was James Madison's point, And I don't think that was George Washington's point. If it was, they would have said, get over it. But they recognized as I know we recognized, what a profound danger that would be for that to become the new normal. Another election is upon us. Ten months voters will undertake their most important duty as citizens by going to the polls and voting for their leader. And so we must ask, what role will foreign powers play in trying to influence the outcome? And if they take the president's side, who will protect our franchise if the president will not? As charged in the first article of impeachment, 
President Trump has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to national security and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office, and has acted in a manner grossly incompatible with self-governance and the rule of law. Based on the abuse of power for which he was impeached and his ongoing efforts to solicit foreign interference, both directly and through Mr. Giuliani, there can be little doubt that President Trump will continue to invite foreign interference in our elections again and again. That poses an imminent threat to the integrity of our democracy. Our founders understood that a president like Donald Trump might one day grasp the reins of power. An unremorseful, overreaching executive, faithful to himself only, and willing to sacrifice our democracy and national security for his own personal advantage. His pattern of conduct repeatedly soliciting foreign interference in our elections for his own benefit confirms that he will stop at nothing to retain his power. He willfully chose to place his own personal interests above the country's and the integrity of our elections. There is every reason to believe that will continue. He has stonewalled Congress and ordered executive branch agencies, organizations that work for the American people, not for the president, to join in his obstruction. He deployed Mr. Giuliani to Ukraine to continue advancing a scheme that serves no other purpose than advancing his 2020 re-election prospects. He attacked witnesses, public servants, patriots, who stayed true to their oath and leveled with the American people about the grave national injury that resulted from the president's misconduct. And he continued to urge foreign nations to investigate American citizens that he views as a threat. The threat that he will continue to abuse his power and cause grave harm to the nation over the course of the next year until a new president is sworn in or until he would be reelected is not hypothetical. Merely exposing the president's scheme has not stopped him from continuing this destructive pattern of behavior that has brought us to this somber moment. He is who he is. That will not change, and nor will the danger associated with him. Every piece of evidence supports that terrible conclusion, that the President of the United States will abuse his power again, that he will continue to solicit foreign interference to help corruptly secure his reelection. He has shown neither remorse nor acknowledgement of wrongdoing. If you can believe that July 25th was a perfect call, that asking for investigations of your political opponents and using the power of your office to make it so is perfectly fine, then there is nothing that would stop you from doing it again. President Trump has abused the power of his office and must be removed from that office. Mr. McConnell, I yield back. The Majority Leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, I suggest a 15-minute uh, recess. Without objection, so ordered.